Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. Andrew Yang is an American entrepreneur, the founder of Venture for America, and the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Time and again in our podcast, you'll hear our guests extolling us the virtues and benefits of being a generous connector without expectations. Andrew is this philosophy personified. At heart, an entrepreneur first, but by his own admission, he's wired to solve problems. In researching the social impact of artificial intelligence and automation's effect on our society for his book, The War on Normal People, he came to understand these changes are happening so fast that most don't understand the urgency of the problem we all face, especially our leaders. Already successful in business, he easily could have continued his upward trajectory. But Andrew's feelings on the urgent need to address these sweeping changes are so great that he saw no other solution but to run for President of the United States. Andrew is a great guy, incredibly likable and humble, not to mention the epitome of a generous connector. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew Yang as much as I did. So what do you do for fun? I try to play basketball, which is less common given that I've got a five-year-old and two-year-old little boys. They're handfuls, and they also are not quite at a point where playing basketball on a regulation <laughs> basket in court makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. So now, what's going on in your life? Uh, well, I'm running for president of the United States as a Democrat. I've been actively campaigning for a few months now, uh, and that's been an incredible journey already, learning a lot growing, which is a great feeling, and helping people understand that we're going through the greatest technological and economic shift in human history with the advent of automation, robotics, AI, software, and that it's no longer speculative. We're actually already in the third or fourth inning. And uh, the research in my book, which I found really terrifying, honestly, is that we've automated away about 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states that I spent a lot of time the last six and a half years in my capacity as CEO of Venture for America. And it's already transformed our culture and economy and families even uh, in ways that are impacting us day to day. And for whatever reason, we're not acknowledging that that's what's happening. We're paying attention to the symptoms instead of the root cause. So did you always want to run for president? Gosh, no. <laughs> I'm certainly not one of those people who was like, I'm going to be president one day. I mean, I find that <laughs> yeah. that's somewhat unfortunate if I do. And I shouldn't say that because I have friends who probably resemble that. But I grew up wanting to start businesses and be an entrepreneur. And that's what I've done for the last number of years. Politics has been something that's off, been off on the side. And I've had an interest in it and uh, in trying to elevate other people who are in that sphere. And I admired them in part because it just seemed so shitty <laughs> that if someone chose to do it, like if you find a politician who's actually doing it for the right reasons, you're like, wow, <laughs> that's kind of amazing. And then you want to support that person, but you don't want to be them. The only reason I'm actually now running myself is that I believe our problems have become so deep and pervasive and our current leaders are completely out to lunch on them to a point where I believe this is the way I can do the most good. Yeah. How do you think you're going to be able to stay away from the politics of politics? Because that's an animal in and of itself. 
I'm learning already uh, just how bad it is. But I'm glad to say that if you're an outsider entrepreneur running for president, uh, you don't necessarily have to kiss the same rings or play by the same playbook. That what we need to do is we need to convince tens of thousands of primary voters in New Hampshire and caucus goers in Iowa that I'm telling the truth about our economy and the effect of technology. And that's the lever that you need. So there's a whole lot of infrastructure around politics that can serve as something of a distraction or a sideshow. Hmm. So is that why, when you talk about not having to kiss all the same rings, why you haven't run for Senate or something else prior to that? You're just going right to the top? Well, the, the truth is that I have low interest in being a senator. Uh, it also seems like kind of a bad job. And I, again, not a knock. There, I know a few senators and some of them are excellent human beings. But if you believe, as I do, that we're in the midst of automating away millions of American jobs, and some facts and figures on this, truck driving is the most common job in 29 states. There are three and a half million truckers, 94% male, average age 49 average education, high school, or one year of college, making about $45,000 a year on average. My friends in Silicon Valley tell me that we are only a few years away from being able to automate their jobs because there's a pot of gold to the tune of $168 billion per year in economic incentives and cost savings to automate truck driving. That's why we have some of the smartest people in the country working on it right now. So if you believe, as I do, that that's an immediate disaster in the making and that you have five years or so to try and prevent it, then running for Senate doesn't make much sense because you'd have to run and win. It'd be a couple of years. And then from that vantage point, particularly since I'm from New York, it's not like automation is an issue that's New York centered. I mean, we're automating away jobs in in New York, too. Don't get me wrong, (laughs) but it's a, a different form of job. So there, there are not many intermediate political jobs that I would find appealing. But also, if you're trying to solve this particular problem, running for president is a much more effective way to do so. Yeah. So you'd say that that is the most pressing issue that we have in the forefront? I would, because it's immediate and it's driving many, many other things. That if you're passionate about other issues, call it social problems or injustice or child welfare Technology getting rid of many, many low-end jobs is actually going to make many of those social issues much, much worse. 10% of American workers work in retail and sales, and 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years. That's not an AI or software issue. That's just the flight of retail to e-commerce, where Amazon is sucking up tens of billions in retail business every year. And it's now reaching a point where brick and mortar malls and retail establishments just don't make any sense. So the changes are coming on us very, very fast. There are two and a half million call center workers in the United States. How long do you think it's going to be before AI can outperform the average call center worker who makes $14 an hour? We might be able to do that right now, actually. I don't know if you saw that demo that that came out recently. Yeah, it's scary. You know, there's a lot of jobs that are going to be eliminated. So I like the idea of UBI. And if you don't mind in a minute or two, explain what that is for those who are not familiar with it. But what would the argument to UBI be? Meaning, you know, oh, it's only $12,000 a year or all that's just going to do is put cash in people's pockets that are then going to spend, which again could be, which is obviously a good good thing. thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But is 12,000 enough? 
When I was investigating universal basic income, and so when, when I became concerned about these issues, I was the CEO of Venture for America. We'd helped create several thousand jobs throughout the country, but I became convinced that automation was going to eliminate millions of jobs in the coming years. And so when I started doing the research, universal basic income kept coming up as the best step to counter the automation of jobs. And having research the history of universal basic income and the studies that have been done and the trials, I'm convinced that it is the best and most effective way that we can move forward. So universal basic income is a policy where everyone in a particular country gets a certain amount of money every month, free and clear, no questions asked, doesn't matter how much you make or even what you're working. Uh, And my plan, the freedom dividend, is for everyone to get $1,000 per month if you are between the ages of 18 and 64. And that would not serve as a work replacement, but what it would do is it would be an income supplement to Americans around the country and also make our labor market much more dynamic and mobile because right now Americans are actually moving across state lines at multi-decade low rates where our labor market is getting stuck and stagnant And we're diverging into some regional economies like the New York metro area and San Francisco and Seattle, very, very high cost companies that are growing very quickly. And then in other regions around the country, you're seeing record low rates of business formation and much lower rates of growth. So universal basic income of $1,000 a month would create four and a half million new jobs because you'd be putting purchasing power into people's hands so they would spend it more on car repairs and supplies for their kids and everything else. And it would increase the size of the consumer economy by two and a half trillion dollars or 13% per year, according to the Roosevelt Institute. And so it's it's an ideal transition step that allows us to make our people much more mobile and would also result in an incredible catalyst for entrepreneurship and creativity. So do you see a time frame on this policy or program? Does it have a shelf life? Well, we should be implementing this yesterday, in my opinion. Things have gotten that bad, where today 59% of Americans cannot afford an unexpected $500 bill, and our life expectancy has actually declined for the last two years, which is almost unheard of in a developed country due to a surge in suicide rates among middle-aged Americans and opiate deaths. Seven Americans die of opiates every hour. So the social indicators are telling us that we are not heading in the right direction. So we should implement this immediately and then have it in effect for as long as it's needed. But the truth is that we're going to automate away many, many more jobs as we go. And so it would probably be in place for the foreseeable future. All right. So how do we, how do you implement this? I mean, obviously you've got to become president first, but then who's going to buy in on this? Well, the great thing is there's actually a lot of bipartisan support for the set of ideas. And if you dig into the history of universal basic income, it was mainstream political wisdom in the 60s and 70s. It passed the House of Representatives in 1971 under Richard Nixon. Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman was for it. A thousand economists signed a letter saying that it would be great for the economy and society. We've actually had a version of universal basic income in effect for 36 years in one state, Alaska, and that was passed by a Republican governor and has been in effect and is wildly popular in a deep red state. So there's actually a lot of history on the conservative side uh, and among libertarians in particular for universal basic income with the thought that it helps to shrink 
the bureaucracy and put more agency and autonomy into the hands of individuals. Yeah, I think was Montana trying to do something like that? I feel like they were trying to implement something. There are a couple of cities around the country that are running trials that are privately funded for the most part. But it's very difficult for states to make meaningful moves in this direction because 40 out of the 50 states have balanced budget amendments that make it so they can't go into debt in any given period. And if you were very, very generous, then anyone who is on the border of your state might decide to move. I mean, the reason we don't move to Alaska for a couple thousand dollars a year is that it's really far away and it's cold and you know, like, like, that's not a choice you'd make for... Uh, for that much. But if a state like Montana were to put something in effect, then if you were to live, if you live 10 miles from the Montana state border, you might make a move. Where did this benevolence come from? I mean, you could easily, you know, you don't need to necessarily be fighting for the people. You've got an underground from Brown. You've got an MBA. I'm sorry, you've a, a JD. Um, you've worked for a top firm. You've started your own firms. You've done very well. You, you don't need to be doing this. What's the driver? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I think the way I'm wired is you see like the biggest needs and you try and solve for them. And one of the things I've become convinced of is that many of the biggest needs right now in our society that are being unmet are things that are, have uh, diffuse consequences and would require something like the government to address. Uh, because there are many market needs, and our society has developed excellent mechanisms for addressing those needs. And you know, you have all of the venture capitalists and businesses and technologists trying to march towards progress, just like automating away truck driving uh, represents. But then there are these public needs that are growing and growing because our government has become such a flop. It's become such this 60s era bureaucracy from hell (laughs) that doesn't have the right capacities. And most of us have given up on it. Uh, And so Now, when I get animated about things that need to happen in the world, I see that this is the biggest need. This is going to sound sort of funny, but I don't see myself as necessarily like this super benevolent soul or person, but I consider myself an entrepreneur and you just identify problems and try to solve for them. In this case, to me, I feel very confident I've identified the biggest problem we're facing as a society, which is the automation of jobs and the fact that our labor force participation rate, as we're here together right now, is down to 62.7%. A multi-decade low in the same levels as El Salvador and the Dominican Republic does not show up in headline unemployment, but our labor participation rates, record lows. I feel confident I've identified the biggest problem we're facing and that no one's going to do anything about it. And so if I did not try and do something about it, uh, I would feel like an asshole, honestly. Like I'd be like, oh, I see the biggest problem. It's Hmm. a tidal wave that's going to trash my country, my society, and leave my sons to grow up in a society that no one's excited about. But I'm just going to let that (laughs) I'm just going to let that happen and go try and find a way to make money for myself or start planning for the compound. I mean, (laughs) like that. You know, like when you look at it in those terms, I don't think you need to be super benevolent to want to do something about it. I think you just need to have an ability to solve problems because this is the biggest set of problems that we all share. Okay, so you're running for president. The goal is to turn things around. As I'm sure you know, as an entrepreneur, you got to start with the problem and work your way back, right? Yes. So you've identified that. What are going to be the key pieces to make your run successful, not just to become yeah let's even just start with that what, what is it going to take 
to and and how important are the people that you've surrounded yourselves and the relationships that you've made going to contribute to that goal? Well, the people have been everything. Uh, and that's been true over the last number of years, even before I was running for president. When I started Venture for America, I donated 120000 to start the organization, and our budget was a little higher than that. But we grew and grew to a budget of more than $6 million last year, and that was because people decided to get behind the organization and me and, and our goals and ideas. And so running for president, you have to do the exact same thing, which is build a team and an organization and get people behind you, uh, get people to buy into your vision and ideas. And I have to say how invigorating it is to see some of the people that have come through big for the campaign in our early days. I mean, that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. I tell people that you always find out who your friends are when you're an entrepreneur. It's a little bit like having a kid um, because, you know, that'll weed some people out too. <laughs> yes, it does. So you you wind up with a really tight group of genuine relationships. Some people will, will ignore you, let you down, and that's cool. And it's happened every time I've started a business or organization. But then when the people come through for you, that bond is so real and genuine and tight. And that bond is being strengthened through this campaign between me and many, many other people. Yeah. What have you done in you know, a relationship? You can only do 100% of the 50% that goes into a relationship. So what have been some of the things that you have done to maintain or build some of these relationships that uh, are now coming back to you and really helping support uh, your mission? Over the, the last number of years, I really have been in a position to be grateful to so many people for so many things. In terms of what I've done, I think it's been to express that gratitude in many, many situations. So when you start a nonprofit or you run for president, you're asking a lot of people for a lot of stuff. And when they come through, if you're moved by it as I am, then you just express that. And that is what, in, in my mind, helps invigorate these relationships. Not to say, I mean, I also drop everything and try and do everything I can for other people that ask me for, for some sort of help or introduction or input to the extent that I've developed relationships over the years. If someone asks me to do something, I will try to do it the vast majority of the time because oftentimes I can help someone without that much of an exertion. Uh, you know, it's like if you one of the things that I naturally do is that if you see two awesome people who ought to know each other, then you just try and make that happen. And I've certainly made some relationships I'm very proud of happen. It sounds like I'm a matchmaker in like all these weddings, though I actually have gotten a few people married too. <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, and, and so if you do that consistently, if you just have an orientation where you meet people and you're trying to add value then over time that ends up developing great relationships. I mean, I just know for a fact some of the relationships that you've developed. Is that natural to you? Is that something that you've just had to put a lot of effort into? Is that something that you've learned or read about? You know, I, I think that's the best thing I could say about my ability to nurture relationships is that I genuinely just want to do people solids if I can uh, and help them. And it has not been an exertion where I was like, oh, I'm going to like try and build a big network. Like it, it's not like that. Like I'm lousy at Christmas cards, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who's been like, oh, I'm gonna like create spreadsheets and touch points. Yeah. Um, but if I can help someone out, I'm very, very eager to do so. Uh, and I also make it a point not to just ask people or just not to do things 
for people who can reciprocate. Like, you know, you have to help some people that will probably never do anything for you. I mean, it's like that's just what makes the world go round because all of us are down on our luck at some point. I mean, my first company flopped in my mid-20s and I remember the people that put their arm around me and said, hey, it's going to be cool. And then the people that ignored me because it's like, oh, you know, like failed entrepreneur. And so I remember being that guy. And so when someone comes to me uh, and they're not on top of the world, I want to help them all the more. That's great. What has your experience been with some of these relationships in terms of capital raising, not just from a business standpoint, because I've got to assume raising capital for an entrepreneurial venture is extremely different than raising money as you're running for president. Or, or for a nonprofit. I've done all oh, three. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I've now done the trifecta. I've raised <laughs> money for startup companies. I've raised money for a nonprofit. And I've now raised money for a presidential run. And they are all different. Of the three of them, I think my favorite is probably raising money for a private company. <laughs> like, I think that's the most pure in a way, in the sense that like you figure out how the investor is going to get paid back. And you can get very big checks. You know, you can get big checks for nonprofits too. I had the good fortune of having people like Dan Gilbert make seven-figure commitments to Venture for America over the years. But having done all three, they are very different processes. They each have their pluses and minuses, but they all can be done and done successfully. Yeah. What has been the biggest challenge, I guess, with this current race? Is that the right even terminology to call it a raise when you're doing uh, for president? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all entrepreneurs here. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Our democracy is not functioning at its highest levels right now. But one of the rules that's meant to fuel democracy is that the personal contribution limit to a presidential campaign is 2700 per person or 5400 if you are married. And so that's the most I can get from any individual so if I'm going to raise the millions I need, I need lots of individuals. And so that's in some ways fun and awesome because then you're like, okay, I need to beat the drum, spread the word, meet more and more people. And it's a different process. But that's also a challenge where if I have this really excited person who I know would be donating 10 times or 100 times that amount, uh, they just write a check for five thousand four hundred for you know them and or them and their spouse together write checks for fifty four hundred and that's it and then you're like wow um, I know this person's good for more <laughs> <laughs> that does drive you in very positive directions though and I, I'm very proud to say and pumped up by the donations we get to the campaign every day because I'm getting ten dollars from truckers in North Dakota sales clerks and Uber drivers and professors in Georgia and Florida and North Carolina and Washington State every day. I mean, anytime I need motivation, I just pull up the real-time donations. And if you're getting $1 from an unemployed person in Montana, then you just think to yourself, someone believes in me and what I'm doing in this campaign, uh, and I need to deliver. Yeah. How do you get the word out to these people? Like, How do they know about you and your mission? Well, in my case, I was fortunate enough to get a lot of national press when we launched. And so I do a lot of media. I do a lot of press. I mean, we don't have some megawatt budget yet that we're getting there. And so you have to deliver on earned media opportunities. And I think that's the way that the guy in Montana and the other people around the country have discovered us. As a couple of examples, uh, there was like a short video from a company called Now This that got over a million hits in 
three days. I was on a YouTube show with 1.8 million followers. And then I've been on MSNBC and CNBC and a lot of other places. So the word is getting out. And people, 70% of Americans have woken up to the reality that technology is eliminating many more jobs than it creates. And by galvanizing an honest discussion around what this means and where we need to go, you attract people because the truth is very powerful. Yeah. Getting back to the presidential run itself, you know, something at least for me where I've always had the biggest problems or qualms, I guess, with any of the candidates that are running is that they only say negative things about their opponents or about their, you know, about the administration. And to me, it's it's very obvious, you know, you're running because you can make it better. If I could, or if you could, I should say, be kind enough to let me know what's done well, you know, whether the with the current administration or even maybe just the, Repu- you know, on the Republican Party itself, what do you think that they do well? Well, I've got man, like, I think good ideas come from everywhere. And I think the toxic relationship that people in these political parties have with uh, the other party or much of the American public uh, is corrosive. It's it's keeping us from solving the real problems. And we have very, very big, serious, real problems. What the Republicans uh, have historically done well is there's a, a sense of enterprise and capital efficiency and business orientation that I honestly love and quite resemble. (laughs) (laughs) I think Donald Trump is an emblem to the accelerating decline of our society. So I'm certainly not a Trump fan. But uh, I think that good ideas come from from everywhere. And we need to take the best ideas from Republicans, libertarians, independents, which now independence, the majority of the country, though I'm running for president as a Democrat, I'd consider myself more of an independent in much of my thinking. I was going to ask you about that because, quite frankly, I was shocked that you fell into that. I'd be curious curious to how, you know, who quantifies, you know, what you are. Well, you do check that box yourself. You make that choice. And if you're going to run for president, you have to choose one of the major parties unless you're Mike Bloomberg, really, and can just fund the heck out of. Literally, you need to have a couple of billion dollars lying around extra uh, to run as an independent and have a chance of victory. So if you're going to run for president, you need to choose one side or the other. And I did register as a Democrat back in the Clinton years in the, the, the 90s and have leaned Democratic on most social issues for a long time. So it, it is a very natural home for me in many respects. You know, I think that there are many things the Democratic Democratic Party needs and could use right now. It needs some new solutions and energy and policies. And I'm hoping to be able to provide much of that. But both parties, in my opinion, reflect the struggles of the period we're in. And both parties are not thriving. So back to some of the relationships that you've developed, I would think just out of who you've surrounded yourselves with and what you've done, that you've got a significant amount of friends that probably are Republican. I don't know if you track this, but do you know the percentage of people that are donating to your campaign that might not necessarily fall in the Democratic Party? There are a lot of people that are not traditional Democrats that have been donating to the party. And a lot of them voted for Donald Trump. And they say as much and say, I voted for Donald Trump. And now I'm supporting you. And I love that. I mean, uh, that's what we need. We need to get centered around what the real problems are, and then build real solutions because I was just in DC a couple of weeks ago and someone said something to me that will stick with me forever. 
And he said to me that Washington, D.C. is not a town of leaders. It is a town of laggards and followers, and that they will be the last people to figure anything out or get on board, and that you have to create a wave in other parts of the country that crests and then lands in D.C., and then everyone there will grow to understand it. So then what's the execution to that? Well, the execution is that we activate uh, people in New York and New Hampshire and Iowa and California and Texas and create that wave, create that revolution that wants to build a different sort of economy that does not rely upon the market's ability to measure how much we're all worth because the market's about to turn on most of us very, very fast. I agree. I mean, there are these experienced Wall Street traders who've made hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and then their jobs get automated away. And it's not that that Wall Street trader all of a sudden got dumber or lazier, just that their job became a series of algorithms on a server. I know that very well. So I used to have an executive search firm that catered to the Wall Street community. And I can't begin to tell you how many of those people I've come across and how many of them, I mean, there are a handful that I can think of just off the top of my head, and I'm far removed from this, that are still unemployed. Um, so they made a significant amount of money. They did their thing. They owned their they honed their craft, but technology has replaced them, and the skill set that they developed is no longer applicable or transferable to not really much. So they went from living in high society to being in a really tough place. And, and as I'm sure you can imagine, the domino effects of that are pretty serious. Yes, uh, that's very real. This is not just a truck driver or a call center worker or retail worker or a fast food worker problem. This is traders, pharmacists, bookkeepers, radiologists, journalists. Many, many white collar jobs are getting automated out of existence. And instead of looking around like idiots saying, well, that's the market, and then shrugging and saying, I get, you know, like, you know, should have been smarter and harder working. <laughs> it's getting increasingly ridiculous and everyone's waking up to it. So we need to progress to the next stage of capitalism and start distributing value in a way that's independent of what the market says, because the market does not care about us, our society, our way of life, our families, and we need to start making decisions for ourselves. That, that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is this is not something that the market's going to resolve for us. Um, we have to get our shit together and start making big moves, and no one's going to save us but ourselves. Apologies for interrupting this conversation, especially if you're really enjoying it. I know that I get frustrated when I'm listening to a good podcast, so I'll make it quick. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us on patreon.com slash networkwise. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts and exclusive networking advice. Okay, that was painless. So all you have to do now is help us on Patreon and enjoy the remainder of the show. Hmm. So let's say you, you win. 2020 is yours. You're in the White House. What's the biggest concern that you have once you get there? So the biggest concern I have is the institutionalization of D.C. and that I'm going to get stuck like some of my friends who are down there like a fly in amber, you know, where you try and get things done. And then all of a sudden, like the bureaucracy uh, seizes up, struggle with aspects of this, where our system of government is like an operating system that's become out of date 
and needs to be updated and upgraded, but it's not capable of upgrading itself. So the biggest fear I have is I get there and the system is beyond our ability to streamline and reform and fix in a way that allows us to exercise human priorities and values. So what kind of people do you need to surround yourself to execute this plan? Well, the fun thing is if you started multi-million dollar entrepreneurship organization that operates in 18 cities around the country and has funders in Silicon Valley and New York and other places, you're in touch with some of the coolest, smartest, (laughs) savviest entrepreneurs in the world. And as president, I am going to bring those people to Washington and we are going to overhaul government. It is embarrassing what we have allowed to happen in so many of our departments where they're using these antiquated systems and technology and you go there and you're like, oh my gosh, is this still the 80s? And you have miserable employees and giant bureaucracies and you know they, they can't get a freaking healthcare website up without it uh, having massive problems. And then they have to rely upon a group of awesome, patriotic, pro-social coders from Silicon Valley who swept in and saved the day. I mean, that's why we're all so chagrined and disgusted is that our government has become such this inhuman bureaucracy that we know it will get things done more poorly than a group of enterprising, motivated, tech-savvy entrepreneurs in many instances. So that's the beauty of it is that I know those entrepreneurs and that we're going to come in and do all we can in a reasonable time frame to build parallel ways of doing things that hopefully will accelerate our government and society to the future. Because right now, it's 2018, it's going to be 2020. Artificial intelligence is real. Self-driving cars and trucks are around the corner. And we're stuck with this 1960s era bureaucracy. I mean, if that doesn't change, we are really, really screwed. Yeah. What are the pros of the artificial intelligence? There are many, many pros, uh, I'm happy to say, where AI can help us cure cancer. It could help us manage climate change much more effectively. It's going to be able to do a lot of work in many contexts. And if not for the fact that we're concerned, and I'm very deeply concerned, as you can tell, about the fact that we're going to replace many, many human workers with AI, we'd be rejoicing in all of the wonders that we may be capable of in short order. So AI is a boon and a virtue, and we need to be world leaders at it because the Chinese are investing tens of billions of dollars in it. And if they leapfrog us in that, that's going to be a huge, possibly world-changing competitive advantage. So we need to be at the forefront of AI. And many, many good things could flow from it. But I'm more immediately concerned with the job-related and social repercussions Because again, two and a half million call center workers, you have AI that's better than it. I mean, how long before those call center workers who make $14 an hour join this list of people that used to have jobs? What kind of jobs do you think or would you like to create? You know, because there's going to be a fallout. What do you see on the horizon and what could we be doing? Is there a certain type of schooling that's going to help? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the most discouraging things that we need to reverse is that rates of entrepreneurship and business formation have plummeted to multi-decade lows in the vast majority of the country. And so the businesses and jobs of the future uh, should be ideally born of entrepreneurs that want to bring businesses into the world. And a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month would go a tremendous distance, where if you can imagine if you listening to this right now and got another $1,000 a month, 
then at least your basic needs are accounted for and you'll have the security of starting a business knowing that worst come to worst, you can always fall back on a very Spartan way of life. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's something that would be an enormous catalyst for entrepreneurship in towns and communities around the country. If you look at the jobs that are most likely to be displaced, they're not educated, uneducated. That's not the dimension. It's repetitive non-cognitive jobs and repetitive cognitive jobs. So the jobs of the future are the non-repetitive physical jobs and the non-repetitive cognitive jobs. And so those are the jobs we have to lean into more in terms of job creation. There's also a huge opportunity around the interaction with a physical world where we have about 30 million unfilled electrician, line repair, uh, middle skill jobs, plumbers, and our country is underinvesting in that in a huge way where we're just plowing more people into college and it's not working at all. All we've done is we've reduced our college completion rate down to 59% in six years, saddled up our young people with $1.4 trillion in loans, and then sent them into a job market where 44% of them are underemployed. What are your thoughts on social skills? You think people are more socially... Are they coming out of school these days with better skills or do you feel that they are lacking and could use some improvement? Well, if you look at the numbers, and I'm a very data-driven guy, our young people are actually less social in the real world than they've been in past generations because they have smartphones and they spend a lot of time online. And so they go out less often, they party less often, they have kids as teenagers less often, so that's a positive. And their anxiety levels and depression levels are higher than in any past generation. I'm going to want to talk about that in a minute. Keep going. I'm sorry. No, and it corresponds off, yeah. almost perfectly to the adoption of smartphones. So there was a book that came out, iGen, that had this, the data laid out very, very starkly. I heard that was a great one. Well, it, it certainly will freak you out if you're a parent. I mean, uh, you know, you have kids, I have kids, and smartphones are more powerful in terms of capturing their attention than anything in human history. Yeah, it's wild. So I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but in uh, 2017, the World Health Organization identified, you know, the biggest concerns as stress and loneliness. And obviously, as a result, you know, the um, suicide rates and things coincide with that. In, uh, I think it was January 2017, the UK, they had, they designated a minister of loneliness because of people having lack of social connectivity. You know, they're connected or they think they're connected via, you know, because they're connected on their phones, but they're not socially connected. Well, this is one of my platform elements as president is that we need to issue a new digital social currency that rewards people for interacting with others in positive ways, like volunteering at your local nonprofit, helping a neighbor repair a boiler, giving someone a ride. We create a new currency that maps to pro-social activities that we know we need and love that would support things like taking care of the elderly, volunteering, nurturing children, arts and creativity, involvement with local organizations, journalism, things that the monetary market values at zero or close to zero. So my plan as president would be to issue a new currency that rewards these behaviors with this new currency that you could trade in for dollars. But if you trade it in for dollars and you get taxed, so then everyone would hoard this currency and then trade it with each other. So imagine having the equivalent of time dollars where you could say, hey, could you do me a solid and here are 100 social credits. And the person would be like, great. And then they they do something for you. 
So we need to reinvigorate those social ties that are disintegrating by the numbers, where if you look at membership in local organizations or religious groups, I mean, they're all plummeting. And that's just going to get worse and worse. We, we are descending into a society where we're all going to be staring at screens in the comfort of our own home. And so the, the way to re-energize community ties is by initiating a new currency around it and then putting real resources behind it. Yeah, I like that idea a lot, actually. I think that's fantastic. I can't even imagine, have you thought it out enough steps in terms of the valuing of these credits, or this is just at a high level thought right now, and once you're kind of in office, you'll kind of put the right team around you to be able to implement something like this? Well, you're going to need to pilot it, and it's going to need to be local, where you need to provide incentives and back the currency for local organizations and nonprofits. And the, the great thing, imagine this, imagine you show up in Mississippi and you say, hey, we're going to issue 10 million social credits for people who help increase high school graduation rates or decrease obesity rates in the state of Mississippi. So then entrepreneurs would then put their hats on and say, okay, how am I going to increase high school graduation rates? And then you end up creating myriad incentives for races to the top, where if you can figure that out in Mississippi, then you can start rolling it out in other places. And then you can make a lot of money, <laughs> you know, in a real way. Because right now, if you're a nonprofit, you end up passing the hat saying, you know, I want to do wholesome work, give me the money. And uh, whereas in this way, the government were to put up this new credit system. So we're fleshing it out. I have many people interested in building it. Uh, it would need to be piloted a lot, obviously. But the great thing is there's very limited downside. I mean, you put a bit of money up and then you induce all this positive behavior and you could do so for a fraction of the cost. And so there are three things you could do in this situation. One, you do nothing and then just let things continue to slide and disintegrate. Two, you start trying to pay people dollars, which has obviously so many problems with it. <laughs> and then number three is you create this new currency, guarantee it with dollars, uh, and then you can let a lot of experimentation fly with very few ill effects. And then how do you track this? Would you track this through like a cryptocurrency? So you've got- You could the, definitely the, the use the blockchain yeah. for sure. There are different ways to do it. Essentially, you could do it on the blockchain or you could do it through other means, but I'm attracted to the blockchain-oriented solutions. Yeah, yeah, me too. Why do you think some of these people are, are anti-blockchain? I don't get why someone would be against it. Well, it's probably because their livelihoods are at stake, <laughs> honestly, like for many, many people. I mean, if, if you really play out the potential of blockchain, then there are many, many financial institutions which um, who would have fewer lines of business. Yeah, but there's so much. It just it validates everything. No, it's a check and balance. I was a corporate attorney for five months. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff disappears, too. If through you, through if blockchain? You could, why, why so? How is that? Well, because right now you have these very complicated contracts that are meant to document things and uh, try and prepare for various eventualities and people welching and the, the, the rest of it. A lot of that could go away through a public ledger. Interesting. I mean, I know we're probably in probably the second inning of the whole blockchain world. Yes. I mean, that, that stuff is dramatic. Potential awesome. We're in the early innings, as you say. Yeah. So uh, I think when we first met, it was probably almost 10 years ago, and it was like a Google event. I don't remember exactly where, and it was just a room full of amazing people. And uh, that's probably just a typical day in the life for you. So I'd love to hear about some of the people that have come across your path and that, have, that really stand out to you and what it is about them that makes them stand out to you. The people that have stood out to me are the people that are really generous of spirit uh, and of their time. And so, you know, if you start a multi-million dollar organization that's reliant upon others believing in it, then everyone who 
goes the extra mile for it, uh, you're really grateful uh, to and impressed by in many cases. Some of the people that uh, I feel particularly indebted to are Dara Khosrowshahi, the current CEO of Uber. He's a great guy. Dan Gilbert, founder of Quicken Loans. Great, great, great man, family man. Uh, Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, was awesome to me from day one. Ariana Huffington, such a generous person. I saw her operate behind closed doors, and she was better in private than she even is in public. Like you see that, you know, you, you imagine that maybe there's a different persona. No, it's like the same person thanking her staff and going the extra mile after everyone has gone home. I've never heard anyone say anything bad about her that knows her. Yeah, I've been around her a lot. I mean, I consider her a friend and she's awesome. So when, when you're around people like that, and that is one of the invigorating and beautiful things is that a significant proportion of the most successful people I know are also incredible human beings. And they're exactly who they are in private as they are in public. What are some of those characteristics when you meet somebody that you're looking for? In my case, oftentimes, I'm trying to organize people around a vision or a set of ideas. And there are some people that naturally get excited about ideas and possibilities. And when they realize that I don't care about anything but getting that vision across the finish line, like I don't care about credit, I don't care about money in, in most all these cases, because like, you know, what I'm doing right now would be like an incredibly asinine thing to, thing, to, thing to do if you're concerned about the bottom line on a week to week or monthly basis. So the people that I get most connected to are people that are most excited about the possibility of solving real problems that right now our current institutions aren't designed to solve. Yeah. How are you doing everything? I mean, you've got two kids, five, six and two, five and two? Five and two. Five and two. How, how are you able to do this? And this is a job and a half times 10. <laughs> you know, how are you able to juggle everything? Well, I've got a superwoman wife who's at home with our boys. And so she's really taken over much of the home front. And I've got a great team around me that handles a lot. <laughs> like I get credit for things I had very little to do with. And that's been the case for the last number of years and the last number of enterprises I've been a part of, where as the founder or CEO, or in this case, presidential candidate, a lot of the credit flows to you and you know you have to build on that because you have, you know, an organization to build or an agenda to advance. Um, but you know what bullshit it is a lot of the time where, you, you, you know what I mean, like where you're like, wow, I, I had very little to do with that, but all right, let's go with this. <laughs> well, it's good that you're being honest about it. I don't think most people would do that. <laughs> well, and when I'm president, it's going to be the same thing where I'm going to assemble the dream team of entrepreneurs and patriots, and I'm not going to care one whit about where the idea came from or how the job got done or how much credit I got. I'm going to empower people at the highest possible levels. I think that will do you well. <laughs> you know, what should I be asking you? What have I not asked you? If you were, if the roles were reversed and you were sitting where I'm sitting right now, what, what would you want to know? You know, it's funny is that like I've become such an instrument where people, when they ask me personal questions, I mean, I tell people I've got two priorities right now. One, preparing society for automation slash implementing universal basic income slash becoming president, which is obviously a lot. And then two, staying married. Yeah. And so if I pull those two things, then things will be great. So when people ask me about various personal elements, like I, I feel like I have like less to share because I'm like, well, it's not one of those two things. 
it's become less central. So when you ask, what should I be asking after I found myself thinking, it's like, oh, what sort of interesting personal anecdotes I could share, but then most all my anecdotes revolve around, <laughs> around those two activities. I'm impressed with uh, how you're able to do that, and maybe I should be more impressed with your wife. Yeah, yeah, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, maybe she should be running. Talk to me about the book. I don't know if you're uh, sick of talking about your book, but I think it's an. I, I love everything that it's about, and and I don't know if this was the precursor to running, or was it during the course of writing this book that that a light bulb went off, and you're like, you know what, <laughs> I got to do something here. Yeah, so the book's called The War on Normal People, uh, with normal Love being... Love that name, by the way. Oh, thank you. With, with normal is meant to signify the average American worker. And the five most common jobs in our economy are administrative and clerical workers, including call centers, retail and sales, food service and food prep, truck driving and transportation, and manufacturing. You're kidding me. So those are the five, meaning the, the most predominant positions that are taking up employment in the yes, United States? Yeah, the biggest labor categories. About half of American workers, 49%, work in one of those five categories. So, so that's the normal American I'm talking about. When you talk about the war on normal people, it's that you have the world's most advanced technology, billions of dollars, and the smartest people in the country trying to figure out how to make those jobs extraneous. And are they going to win over time? Of course. I mean, we can see it in front of us every day, like in our closing storefronts and... and uh, like the malls we used to like, <laughs> like the CVS checkouts when you go to. And I, I stink at that self-checkout every time. I'm just like, oh, man, I miss the clerk. <laughs> so so that's the war on normal people. And the book breaks down the mechanics of what's happening to these jobs. And people who are listening to this probably know it's like our capital efficiency incentives all point us in the same direction, which is if I can get this job done with software or AI or uh, really anything but a human, I'm going to do it. Because humans are harder to manage, more expensive, more unpredictable. You know, like if, if you're trying to run a business and you can figure out how to not have humans around, that's what you are going to do. So that's the war on normal people in terms of the, the meaning of the title. But what the book goes into is all of the social ramifications in terms of our day-to-day -day lives and what's happening in our communities. And that's really been some of the stuff in writing the book that shocked me the most, where when you dig into the numbers, you realize we're in the middle of this thing and we're falling apart, where 40% of American children are born to single mothers today, up from 14% in the 70s. And the reason for that is that if you're a non-college educated man in this country, you're unlikely to get married because you don't have a secure career path or economic future. And so you don't have the wherewithal to uh, become a husband. That's a whole uh, other, we could talk about that for. <laughs> this is the American reality. And so when you start digging into what it's all become, it's clear. The picture is clear as day. And so that's what the book is about. And then the book also, I'm happy to say, has meaningful solutions like all of the research I could find on universal basic income and how it's going to improve individuals and families' bottom lines immediately where childhood success rates will go up, nutrition will go up, graduation rates will go up, mental health will improve, domestic violence will go down, hospital visits will go down. This is like immediate, like that, when people get $1,000 a month. Children's personalities even 
change to become more conscientious and agreeable, which are two qualities that are very positive for both professional and personal success. So solutions like this digital social currency I described about the fact that we need to get our crazy educational loan situation under control because I mean we're up to 1.4 trillion average student debt of 38k default rates just going up and up where now it's in the double digits I mean this is a time bomb so I go through th- those issues and then how I would solve for them as president and that's what the book is about I'm really excited by its reception um, some people I admire and respect a great deal have reached out to me about how much of an impact the book has had on them can you expand on that what are some of the quantifiable ways that the book impacted them? Well, a, a number of them have reached out to me and said, like, man, like you woke me up where I didn't know that we were in the thick of this thing already uh, and that we need to get our shit together. I mean, that, that's been the one person said to me, I agree with your diagnosis of the problems now completely. I disagreed with your prescription going in. But upon reflection, I have not been able to come up with another prescription that makes sense. So I am now on board with your prescription. So let's talk about your prescription for a minute. And, and I don't want to take up too much time. I know that you're, you've got a lot in your plate. But how steadfast are you in your exact plan? Or do you know, like, hey, you know, I've got a really good idea about what we need to do, but it is not exactly defined about how we roll it out. So maybe it's not 12,000. Maybe it's 15, or here's how it is. Yeah. So there's a lot of good information and reasons for for 12, uh, just to give you a sense where the poverty line in the U.S. is $12,770. So at 12,000, you get people to right below the poverty line. And it doesn't distort the labor market too much because no one's going to quit their job for $12,000 unless their job was truly exploitative or abusive in some way. Um, But I'm a very data-driven person, very flexible in my thinking. And even as president, we would need to pilot this very robustly and see what the data tells us. But I have looked at the available data, and it is very encouraging in terms of the general direction we must go. Uh, We're behind the curve. I mean, this has gotten to a point now where we need to speed up very, very quickly. We do not have much time. I mean, the truck drivers reflect on this for a moment. Three and a half million, 350,000 own their own trucks. 80,000 at least are ex-military. And so when you start sending them home in large numbers, which we will because only 13% of them are unionized and most of them work for small firms, how are they going to react? I mean, like th- this is the clearest disaster in the making, but there are many, many less obvious disasters in the making working their way through our economy and, and society. And so we need to speed up as fast as possible and be responsive. I'm very willing to be guided by the data, but the data I have seen is indicated to me and convinced me that we are decades behind the curve and we need to speed up very, very fast. So writing the book prompted you, the real thing that prompted you to run for president, or it was, hey, I want to run for president Here's something that I've learned, and I, this is a great way, a great opportunity to give people the chance to get educated on what I'm going to be doing and how I'm going to be changing things. It was to figure things out for myself, where I looked at the situation and said, okay, I have a sense that this is what's happening. Let me go find out whether this is right. And I was open to anything. Like, I'd get there and, and find, oh, it turns out what did happen to the displaced manufacturing workers of Michigan and Indiana? I studied economics, so I would think that they would 
get reskilled, move, find new opportunities, and everything would be okay because that's what my economics professor told me. Oh, in real life, half of them left the workforce entirely. Of that half, 40% filed for disability. Many of them apparently started killing themselves because the suicide rates started surging in these places. When you look at the efficacy rate of retraining programs, they were between zero and 37% on the high end. And so when you look at the data, so I was writing my book, looking at the information, being like, oh my gosh, like this stuff is much, much darker and worse than I ever realized. And so as I was doing this research, uh, I became motivated to solve these problems because I'm not like, oh, like someone should do something about this <laughs> kind of person. So then as I was figuring it all out, I knew I needed to do something to solve the problem. And, and that, in this case, eventually, I realized was running for president. Yeah, oh, that's great. Do you have any questions for me? I'm sorry, I'm dominating this, uh, you know, today's conversation. Not at all, man. I mean, anyone who's listening to this, Adam has things figured out <laughs> because I'm in this beautiful space. He's got this gorgeous family and he's building this fantastic enterprise that's making people smarter and stronger and preparing them and equipping them for work and life. Um, so really, man, like I feel like I got a lot of my my information <laughs> like, like, <laughs> before we sat down. Well, I appreciate that. I thank you so much. I mean, you've afforded a generous amount of time. This was great. Extremely insightful. I know I learned a lot. I really hope that everyone that's listening has a lot of takeaways. I, I would encourage you to everyone to go out and get this book. There's a lot more. Obviously, we could have talked about this, this whole hour or so could have just been discussing the book and what you've got. So, you know, I'll invite you back maybe once you are president and, that, and, you, that's a and deal. you find the time. And if you want to find out more and support this work and my campaign, please go to yang2020.com uh, or just Google my name, Andrew Yang. But we need to come together and push our economy to the next stage of capitalism as fast as we can. The society our children will grow up in depends on our succeeding. That's great. I'm going to put all this stuff in the show notes. So there'll be links that everyone can go directly to this. And, and I would encourage everybody to do that. There's a lot of good that can come from this. So, Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on today. And uh, you make it a great day. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Cheers. I'm really glad you made it through the whole show. It tells me that you found it entertaining and enjoyed the content. In the spirit of helping us continue to provide such great content and amazing guests, we appreciate your participation through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NetworkWise. Your support really helps. Also, if you or someone you know is looking for a career change, is building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com. Not only does this platform offer you a plethora of resources, but will walk you through how to expedite the outcomes and the aforementioned goals that you seek. Thanks again for listening. Make it a great day. And remember to always NetworkWise.